0: imagine that um, you double your population that wants to do economic activity. Um, if, if all these new people would want to use money in the future, then they, they just need the coins available to themselves. And so if you have a limited number of coins that are available, I think this is a problem, right? It's because you, you have scarcity in the coins. And that all of a sudden creates value to holding on having these coins all by itself. And that's a problem, right, because because, you know, the act of holding money should not be something that is uh, that is valuable.
1: If Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies and blockchain has you feeling confused, this podcast episode is for you. There is a strong correlation between Bitcoin cheerleading and Bitcoin's price. Whenever the cryptocurrency has seen a rapid increase in price, mainstream media coverage rises and social media, well, it goes crazy like it always does. But how many people really know what they are talking about? Is this another case of return chasing behavior coupled with a little knowledge being a dangerous thing? Well, my guest on today's podcast is one of the few people who can help answer a lot of questions about cryptocurrencies. He's a professor at the University of Toronto and his research and interests have been focused on financial market structure, financial technology, and studying innovations in cryptocurrency and blockchain. And don't worry, whether you already know a bit about cryptocurrencies or are starting from scratch... I think we hit a really nice balance between explaining the basics and diving a bit deeper into the actual economics to explain how you can judge for yourself if the space is suffering from too much hype or not. I think you're going to find this episode very enlightening. This is Mostly Money, and I'm your host, Preet Banerjee, joined by Dr. Andreas Park, who's going to explain Bitcoin, blockchain, and all things crypto in a mini-crash course. Let me introduce my guest with a bit of his background. Andreas Park is an associate professor of finance at the University of Toronto with appointments to the Rotman School of Management and the Department of Management at UTM. He currently serves as the research director at the FinHub, which is Rotman's financial innovation lab. He is the co-founder of the Ledger Hub, the University of Toronto's blockchain research lab, a lab economist for blockchain at the Creative Destruction Lab, the economic advisor to Conflux Chain, and a consultant to the Ontario Securities Commission and IROC, the Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada. Andreas teaches courses on fintech and financial market trading, and his current research focuses on the economic impact of technological transformation such as blockchain technology. He recently co-authored a design proposal for a central bank-issued digital currency commissioned by the Bank of Canada. And that was actually the impetus for me reaching out to him. And I've had the pleasure of participating in a number of events with Andreas at Rotman, either as a speaker, panelist, or moderator. And so when the email came in from Rotman Events about an event where three different groups who had authored design proposals for the Bank of Canada for what a central bank digital currency might look like, and I saw that Andreas was one of the presenters, I tuned in and it was incredibly enlightening. Andreas, welcome to the show.
0: Well, thanks for having me, Preet.
1: There are a lot of people talking about various aspects of cryptocurrency, mostly Bitcoin. What percentage of people know what they're actually talking about?
0: Ooh, that's <laughs> a really small number if you ask me
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, talk to me about you know the different voices you have, people who are cheerleaders, you've got people who really know what they're talking about, and you've got a whole bunch of people in between. So tell me what your sense is being an expert. From when you hear either things in the media, you're reading blogs, looking on Twitter, what's your sense of how much talk is actually backed up by people who know what they're talking about?
0: Well, you got to be cautious on on which part of the area you're actually talking about, right? So, you know, I think people have by now understood reasonably well what Bitcoin is, Uh, not necessarily how it works, but, you know, what it is and what it isn't is. Oh, that's, that's a mouthful. (laughs) Um, but then when it comes to, you know, the, the part about blockchain that has potential impact and that's really interesting, I think very few people are actually in the know understand well what is going on. And then even, even the people that are in the blockchain space that there is still, you know, um, a whole spectrum of, of knowledge and necessary knowledge that you need not to understand that. So let's take this. So I'm, I'm an economist by training. So I understand, you know, some of the economic implications and the mechanisms that are necessary for, you know, some of these tools that exist. And then there are a lot of people from engineering, and computer science, they understand the tech really well, but they don't understand, you know, in the design that you put in There's economic implications, there's design questions that are directed to economic incentives, and they're not aware of them, or they don't care about them, or they don't understand them. Like and then on the other end of the spectrum I am, I don't really understand all the technological details of how things are done. And I still ask some really dumb questions all the time to to some of my colleagues, right? So um it's it's interesting times there, which it makes this what makes this area so interesting is also that it really requires a, a big view of many different uh thought processes to come together. So it's not just tech.
1: Yeah, and and I think you know a lot of the Conversation is centered around Bitcoin, but there's so many other implications for the underlying blockchain technology. There's so many different cryptocurrencies themselves beyond just Bitcoin. So Bitcoin gets a disproportionate amount of attention generally for definitely the lay audience. But we'll get to all that. Let's, let's start from the beginning, if you will, or at least we'll pick a point in time and call this the beginning. And that would be 2008 with the publication of the Bitcoin white paper. Can you explain the significance of that white paper and what it led to?
0: Well, you know, it's actually um, a pretty clever piece, right? So what, what this uh, you know, person, Satoshi Nakamoto, did was he took two existing pieces of technology and put them together in a smart way to create Bitcoin, right? to create um, digital money, if you want. And, and so the genius is, and let me say what, first what the problem is. The, the problem is that there were attempts before to have digital money. Um, and the problem that people couldn't overcome is a double spend problem, right? So like, if I want to give you money, uh, um, on the internet, I have to give you the original if you want, right? When I send you a PDF or a, a picture, that's really just a copy. It's never the original, but for money, you need the original. And so they, they could never really, nobody could really solve the problem of, uh, you know, making sure that you don't spend the same dollar twice. Mm-hmm. And what uh, Satoshi did was he basically combined the idea of a blockchain, which is the linking of, of pieces of information in a cryptographic manner so that you could see, you could detect any manipulation um, with what's called the proof of work protocol. Which is, does a number of things. It is one, it creates the ability of a network to have consensus about, you know, a change in the network. And it also makes it really hard to, uh, you know, to manipulate the past, right? Um, because what it really is. So there's a lot of talk about, you know, the energy usage and all of that, but really what it is about, it is a random mechanism. To give people in a very large network the ability to create a new entry in the uh, blockchain on the accounting statement if you want right and so
1: yeah well well I want to dive into that a little deeper but before we do I want to talk a little bit more about the motivation behind coming up with this idea so I think you you talked about part of it and that is solving the double spend problem because with physical cash you don't you have minor counterfeiting. Maybe it's not minor in some circles, but effectively, if I have a $20 bill and I pass it to someone, I can't spend that same $20 bill and give it to someone else because someone else has that. So there is no double spend problem with regular cash for the most part. And so the double spend problem was uh, the one of the main motivations. But when it comes to you know a trustless network, the decentralization of this ledger, which is maybe we can explain the blockchain itself for Bitcoin and the other types of blockchains out there is basically a big accounting ledger,
0: Yes, that's right, exactly.
1: And so what this ledger does, and the reason it's called a blockchain is that is a chain of blocks. And this blockchain gets longer and longer as more and more blocks get added. And each block represents uh, the last batch of transactions. And to add a block onto the official blockchain, you have to, as a, as a sense of, you know, all the nodes who are out there taking a look at all the transactions, they're basically solving a, a cryptographic problem. And part of solving that problem and adding to that chain means it has to line up with all the previous transactions that have ever done, been done in order to get accepted by all the nodes. So, so let's talk about this decentralized idea. So when you take a look at a regular ledger, You know, whether it is a company that is selling things, they have a a record of accounting of inventory. Um, A bank has a record of all transactions that go in and out between their customers and other banks or the central bank, but they are centralized. They are owned by, in in many cases, a single entity. So what is the idea of the blockchain in terms of it being decentralized and why is that important?
0: So... And this is a great question, actually, Pete. And I think this actually goes exactly at the core of what the, what the benefit of a blockchain is. Now it's often portrayed as you can do transactions without needing a trusted third party, right? So you can basically anybody can contribute to it and everybody is happy, but nobody has to trust anybody for it to work. Now this is a pretty cool idea, but I think the more important idea here is, is that you think about uh a common infrastructure and a common resource that anybody can use right? where there's no restriction of usage um so there's no nobody who controls access to it but really the important part is it's that it is common for everybody so you know you don't need uh you know it's not it's not a siloed um, um ledger if you want a siloed piece of where the information is kept um and i think if you think about you know collaboration of firms of individuals when when we all work on the same item or the same um you know same problem or the same on the same data at any given point in time that creates uh um, well that takes away a lot of inefficiencies so think about you and i right you actually sent me a, a google document here before before we talked right now um you gave me access to this document and we can edit it at the same time um imagine what that does to a workflow in a firm and the same holds if you think about a blockchain network, as we we all see the ledger of of entries of where uh, where the money is, for instance. And you know, I can trust you know if I trust the ledger as it is, and I want to make a promise statement for a payment for you in the future, I can get the information from that single resource. It's extremely powerful, right? Um, you know, I mean, it's it goes completely against what. Uh, especially firms think, right? So firms like to think of they have their own piece of information. It's theirs, and you know nobody else can look into it and to have something like data or you know sensitive sensitive information in some form of a common resource that's a bit scary. But at the same time it's it could be very empowering.
1: Let's talk about the the use of this blockchain technology. And first, maybe it should sort of separate you know blockchain versus uh, Bitcoin as a currency. These are two separate ideas. So I want the listeners to think right now we're talking about the blockchain and the technology that underpins a number of different use cases. The biggest one that gets the headlines is currency and transactions. So when it comes to payment networks around the world, these are, you know, you have big payment processors like Visa, MasterCard, Interact. And they're tracking all these transactions, and they each have their own ledger, which sort of says, here are all the uh, reconciliations between all these different parties. And so they have a lot of power and a lot of ability to charge people and merchants, people, a lot of money for these transactions to be processed on these networks. And so by uh, disintermediating them and just having a ledger where people can just interact and make transactions directly recorded, The promise was that this would lead to much less transactional costs, maybe faster transactions. So can you talk about what that sort of motivation is and how that is actually playing out in the real world? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Join me for insightful interviews with thought leaders and industry experts. We discuss how optimizing supply chains can break down the barriers that are holding businesses back. That's All Business, No Boundaries by DHL Supply Chain. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
0: So maybe we should... uh, So this is, again, it's it's an interesting and and excellent question to to think about. But maybe we should take... um, A few steps back and just so let me first say a few things about bitcoin right because i think actually bitcoin if you think it's like blockchain 1.0 it's the first implementation of the whole thing and it it really has only the single purpose of shifting money back and forth right so by the way it's with by it's structured and maybe it's useful if we think about ethereum for a second which is the blockchain 2.0 which is really what you're alluding to right so that you have a, a ledger uh, and, a, and a network as a whole, which can do a lot of different things at the same time. Um, and maybe it's, maybe we should just, you know, I, I heard some really cool stories about, um, how Ethereum actually came into being. Um, this is second-hand information, but maybe useful for your listeners anyway, right? Mm-hmm. So, because there's a heard, Canadian story behind it. There is, and it's actually quite cute, right? So you, you've heard of Vitalik Buterin or Buterin, um, right? Um, and so the story goes like this is he, when he was a kid, um, and he, he's still pretty, close to being a kid but when he was a kid um he was into <laughs> com- <laughs> he was into computer games and you know in computer games you have these characters that you create over time right so they have weapons and special skills and all that and then from one day to the next uh the gaming company decided to to kill that character off right so to to restrict access to it and you know he spent months actually creating that character and he was absolutely furious about it, it was you know uh, actually, it was not just furious, very sad, right? It was crying in his sleep and all that, right? Um, and that's how his dad got him into Bitcoin. Why? Well, because Bitcoin is what's called censorship resistance. So no, th- no higher authority can take away your Bitcoin, which is, again, a very powerful statement. You know, if you think of many countries in the world where, you know, you have authoritarian governments that can take away your money for whatever reason they want, right? Legitimate or not. And... So, you know, bit with Bitcoin, you can't do any of that. So this is how the kid got into Bitcoin. And then, you know, when you started, he was working on Bitcoin and he had this idea that, and he worked on a problem, which is so-called colored coins, which is where you use the Bitcoin network to create different types of coins or assets. So such as a character in a game, right? And then he realized this was a problem which was really hard to solve with Bitcoin. It's just, it was just, wasn't made for that. And so then he had this idea of, because he was also in computer science and all, maybe we can create a network which can, uh, you know, just execute code uh, for us so that we all agree on on any change of uh, of, a, of a computing code at any given point in time. And that's how Ethereum came into being, right? So it is really a gigantic computing network. Now, not a, not to be mistaken for a supercomputer, which can do a lot of computations. This one can do only very rudimentary computations, but it can do them in a decentralized manner. Yeah. So, so now I want to, because here's where the difference comes into be, into place, right? So Ethereum also has a cryptocurrency, but it ha- serves a completely different purpose than than Bitcoin. So Ethereum is not set up to be an infrastructure to sh- to shift digital stickers around. The reason why you have the cryptocurrency in Ethereum is because when you have a piece of code, you can write just a code which is just four lines long, which goes into an infinite circle, right? And um, so if you would run something like this on a decentralized network, you would crash the network. So for that reason, you need to have a way to limit that. So how do you do this? Well, you do it by paying. So you have an economic incentive not to run code, which uh goes into infinite loops. And so the reason, therefore, for this network to work is actually that there is something of value, which is, uh, you know, the ether that you have to pay for the execution of code, and that there's a limited resource for that. So, you know, so philosophically, that's actually really different from how Bitcoin was conceived and what Bitcoin was doing which is pretty, it's, its you know, you can see already how the, for me personally, is very really interesting how the economics comes into this. uh Well, I was going to idea.
1: ask you to to sort of, you know, put on your economist's hat and sort of say, comparing, you know, Bitcoin and the Bitcoin ecosystem to Ethereum. It looks to me like Ethereum has so much more possibility behind it than than Bitcoin. Like you said, 1.0 versus 2.0 is probably a really great way to think about it because it, it tackles maybe more ahead on some of these issues that would be of very much interest to an economist. And so maybe I can, um, you know, if we go back to, uh, to Bitcoin and, and you talked about how a lot of people pay attention to the electricity consumption, um, I do want to spend a little bit of time talking about the whole notion of mining and incentives, you know, and, and what is the incentive to commit resources to verifying the next block that gets added to the blockchain so can you talk to me about the incentives in that and how that relates to electricity consumption
0: yeah um, so let's talk about how this actually works so uh so the basic principle that you need for this network to work is that um actually let me let me put it differently so if you want to steal from this network Right. Um, what you need is you need to have the ability to create multiple blocks predictably over time. Okay. So, I mean, you know, if you had the ability to do that, you could steal the money and basically take whatever you want. Now, in order to prevent that, what you have to get is you have to have a mechanism by which, uh, you know, the, the next generator of the block is, is found at random. So you have, you know, let's say a million people that all want to be participating in this. For whatever reason, and uh, you pick only one of them at random to be doing this, right? So that's that's basically the mechanism. This is what this Bitcoin mining is actually really all about. Now, why is why is this picking at random? This uh, cryptographic puzzle that you have to solve is is really uh, nothing is is something which you can only uh, solve by making random guesses. Okay, And so, therefore, these random guesses essentially serve as the random mechanism to to select somebody at random to be the winner of this. Now, you can temper this by uh, committing computing resources to it, right? So, the more guesses you can make per second, the more likely it is that you will win. But it's still still a random mechanism only for each individual.
1: And sorry to, to cut you off. So, when it comes to, um, you know, the computing power. So, a couple of years ago, I was building a PC. And as I was sourcing out the different parts, I was looking for a graphics card. And I noticed that there was either uh, some anomalous sort of premiums being set on the regular price of these cards, or I just could not get these graphics cards. And then I realized that one of the reasons for this, and maybe the main reason, was all these miners um, were buying up bunches and bunches of these graphic cards and daisy chaining them together because that serves the basis of a lot of the computing power that goes into uh, Bitcoin mining. Is that
0: correct? that is absolutely correct because so this solution is random guessing is it it's an extremely trivial process right because all that it is is that you take a bunch of data and then you add another piece of data to it and then you run a piece of code which is roughly 200 lines long um it's called a hashing mechanism developed by the way by you know the NSA the National Security Agency which is used also in encryptions um and uh, all that, that that's all that you do so you know, and that's something which graphic cards are really good at to do these, these really really small tasks, but many 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 times over. That's, it's it's not like a computer processor or, or you know a quantum computer which has to do something really really difficult. No, this is really trivial to do. Well, um, oh, that's so- interesting
1: because I was going to ask you about you know what what potential risk does a um, you know quantum computing pose to blockchains integrity? Because you know in the white paper, the Bitcoin white paper itself, it talks about as long as the The majority of CPU power is not controlled by a bad actor, then the integrity of the blockchain is good. In fact, the blockchain itself has never been hacked, right? That's how good this is,
0: correct? That is absolutely correct, yes. It's never been down and never been hacked.
1: Yeah, I mean, that in and of itself is a, such an incredible innovation, technological innovation. But again, as you said, that's just 1.0. There's so many other things that can be now done, and I get the sense that people are maybe putting too much weight on Bitcoin and they're kind of tying everything together into this one thing. It's cryptocurrency, it's Bitcoin, but there's so much more to cryptocurrencies in the ecosystem as, as you are enlightening our audience with. So, okay, so to get back to the electricity consumption, I do have one more question on this and I don't know if you saw this, but um, Kevin O'Leary recently made some headlines because he said that he would no longer buy Bitcoin that was mined with unethical energy sources. And the question I have is, how the heck would you even know that?
0: (laughs) This is ridiculous.
1: The conversation with Professor Andreas Park continues in just a minute. But first, a few thank yous to listeners who left comments on Apple Podcasts. Hassan BRZ, or BRZ, who found the podcast after watching some of my YouTube videos. Thank you for dropping by, Hassan. And Smokin' Joe, who left burger joint recommendations for me the next time I'm in Ottawa. And he recommended the Old Dubliner and the poorhouse and i'll be sure to check those out so thank you for those tips and thank you to everyone who leaves ratings and comments on apple Podcasts. i appreciate them i do read them all and if you have either burger recommendations or donut recommendations please do feel free to leave those in the comments i'm a sucker for both and now back to the conversation with professor
0: andreas park Now let's, let's be, uh, so, so, you know, I, I fully agree, by the way. So this Bitcoin energy consumption is, is, is a very sad side effect of it, right? But Mm -hmm. uh, let's, let's take Mm -hmm. one step back and let's think about, you know, the energy consumption per se. Um, I would argue now there's, there's, there's two things I'm going to make a little provisional at the very end of what I'm going to say, but let's just think about where electricity is produced and how. So we have hydroelectricity, we have wind electricity, uh, and nuclear power, right? So these are major sources of electricity. Forget about coal plants and, and the dirty electricity. But these are, for practical purposes, uh, not CO2 in, in you know, uh, harming uh, technologies at this point. Now, nuclear, of course, we know that there's issues with this. I don't want to put that aside, but it exists for now, right? So let's go with that. Now, all of these are... Uh, technologies create electricity at times when it's not needed right so hydro runs at night nobody uses electricity at night windmills mostly run at night nobody needs electricity at night and the same holds for nuclear power nuclear power is always on and it doesn't create electricity at night it does create electricity at nights when it's not needed so you know Belgium had nuclear power stations very early on and they have all their highways um, they have lamps uh, street lamps on all their highways. Now, um, forgetting about the you know ele- the the damage that you create by light, you know, to the environment, but the reason why they built them is because they had all this excess electricity and they didn't know where to put it, and and it's actually a problem, right, for for nuclear power plants. Mm-hmm. So you have to have batteries of some form. But now we can have an entire discussion about how you know how great <laughs> electric cars actually are because they charge at night and they can use all of this yeah. ex- excess electricity. Mm-hmm. But you can, but when you look at where. These Bitcoin mining farms are, so where people put their server farms in order to do the Bitcoin mining. They put them where you have hydroelectricity. Um, they put them, you know, I would not go with wind farms, but they really put them in areas where electricity is cheap and, and usually in abundance, available in abundance. So I would argue if you, um, if you run a Bitcoin mine at a hydro dam at night, right? Um, you know, I, I, you cannot go out and say that this is, a, a waste of electricity as such, um, to the same degree as it would be if you run it during the day at a coal factory. Mm-hmm. Right, a coal. So the same holds for nuclear power. So if you use el- excess electricity for that purpose, maybe it's not so bad. Mm-hmm. Having said that, these farms also create a lot of heat. So that, you know, contributes to global warming. <laughs> so Amazing. now Great. all I wanted to say here is, is that it is not a it's not entirely accurate if you just look at the overall energy consumption and say oh well this is all terrible like you have to build new coal mine coal coal plants in order to to use this that is not the right view on this one but over time we want to get rid of this uh proof of work protocol for sure
1: right so let's tie this back to the incentives that we talked about for miners why would they commit all these resources to doing this
0: well, there's two things that they get, right? So first they get fees from users that is in Ethereum is now a major source of income. It's on the order of several million dollars a day, right? Um, and the second thing is, is that every time you create a block, you get to give yourself a reward for it. And that reward is coming in for Bitcoin and new Bitcoins in Ether. It comes in new ETH. It's sometimes referred to as the Coinbase reward, Right, so, And that all that it means is you basically create or you mint new cryptocurrency at that point.
1: And so let's talk about um, parallels to <clears throat> traditional mining industries, such as, let's say, gold. So with gold, if you take a look at all the gold that has ever been extracted from the earth compared to the rate of extraction today, um, you have um, stock versus flow, and that ratio is about 50 to 1%. And it's getting harder and harder to find more gold, right? You have to expend more energy and resources to, to find the next, um, you know, ton or whatever. And with Bitcoin, part of the thinking behind building it used some of those principles. And so that there is a finite number of coins that could ever be mined. And the reward decreases over time, I think. Um, so can you explain how that works and how they build scarcity into the system?
0: Well, you know, this is essentially okay, so so first let me, let me just say one thing quickly. Uh, Ethereum actually has no limit to it, right? And okay. many blockchain networks that are built now don't have that limit. This is really something unique to Bitcoin. Okay. Um and it it was a bit of a so this is where technology sort of get mixed with philosophy, right? Of of what they thought was right and wrong. Um so, you know, the um so the, part of this white paper of Satoshi's was that you have a limited uh, supply of Bitcoin and it sort of came at the time of the financial crisis when mm-hmm. you know there was pe- you know this whole talk about the flooding of markets with extra money and so on and so forth. I think there was a lot of misconceptions about what that actually meant and how it works, but let's just take that aside, right? Um so the way the scarcity is we created it, it's essentially it's an automated process. Um you know there's a uh, Bitcoin runs on a protocol which is agreed upon by anybody who does the mining and um so according to this protocol, the amount of Bitcoin that you can give yourself in the block uh shrinks um every uh I, I forgot about this now I don't know the numbers you, you can check them, but it's I think it's about every half year or so or every year. And, and year is is not in terms of time, but it's in terms of the number of blocks as they're being created. Um the the reward shrinks and eventually it goes to zero. Um now if you think about money, this is not a great way to think about money, right? Because just imagine that um, you double your population that wants to do economic activity. Um, if if all these new people would want to use money in the future, then they they just need the coins available to themselves. And so, if you have a limited number of coins that are available, I think this is a problem, right? Mm-hmm. Because you you have scarcity in the coins, and that. All of a sudden, creates value to holding and having these coins all by itself, and that's a problem, right? Because because you know the act of holding money should not be something that is uh, that is valuable. Um, so let's let's go to history for one second to Canada. So in Canada, um, when we were still a colony, uh, we got our money from from the UK, right? It had to be shipped over with ships. And you know, Canada was a growing economy, it was a growing country, and we had shortage of money. So there was just not enough money coming into the country for people to have it in circulation. And for that reason, people had to find other ways how to pay. So if you go to the Bank of Canada Museum, they actually had playing cards that they use. You know, like you know, poker cards, mm-hmm. the, or, or the equivalent of it. They use that as a as a way how to create money and IOU so that you. Could actually have the uh, you know money flows going on um even though there was no physical money available to you and um, and so what that tells you is that there was so this essentially is like printing new money right and so with bitcoin, if you really wanted to run bitcoin as money for, as as real digital money for people in a world economy in particular in a growing world economy, it's never going to work right this is conceptually wrong <laughs> right
1: yeah, and um I think that. That has been one of, the, one of the issues. A lot of people are saying this is the reason why it has value, but I think that has also led to why, as you said, there are so many people who are willing to just sit on coins and think of them more as investments as a mean, instead of as a means of exchange of value. And So this presents uh, a, an economic problem in the long run because of, a, as you said, growing number of people and a finite number of coins, at some point, it could be an issue.
0: So let's, let's now let's think, just one thing, just think about this through to, for instance, if you had a network, like Ethereum, which started in a crowdfunding campaign, so what you do in a crowdfunding campaign, you can say, basically say the network as a whole is worth, I think it was $150 million. And let's assume that this number is constant, right? When you give people the uh, the miners a block reward, what you do is you create essentially dilution of the existing coins. And what you therefore do is you pass, uh, you know, value on from everybody else in the network to the miners for the service of maintaining and securing the network. That sounds actually it's pretty cool idea, right? So it's important to think that if each ETH, for instance, would be worth $1, and you create and you issue new ETH. It doesn't mean that you give people $1 worth of an ETH because that would be creating it out of thin air. What you do is you create basically, you know, if you say over a year, you create an extra 150 million, then each ETH would be worth half a dollar at the end of this year. And so all that you've done is you shifted value from those who have the coins to those who maintain the network, which is so this is actually the economic mechanism that underlies that idea. Now, you know, obviously there's questions of what the value of the network of a whole is, right? But conceptually, this is actually pretty clever there. Bitcoin, on the other hand, Bitcoin, on the other hand, was basically created out of thin air. <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> and and so my last question on the incentives for the Bitcoin blockchain is once, because there's a finite number of coins. At some point, you will not get rewarded with a new coin being minted by adding to the blockchain. So once that point has been reached, what would be the incentive for uh, all the nodes, the mining nodes, to ensure the integrity of new transactions on, on the blockchain?
0: So two, twofold. Number one, they get fees from the miners. Uh, not from the miner, from the users, right now. But if you can, if you think about the amount of fees that are currently paid compared to what the um, what the value of the uh, uh, Coinbase reward is, um, ignoring the dilution effect, it's about the fees make up only about five percent of the mining rewards currently. Mm-hmm. So that would have to be in some form, um, you know, be be uh, switched to to fees. That would make Bitcoin transactions really expensive. But keep in mind that the miners are usually long-term players. So they're actually also owners of the network. So in that sense, they actually have a a fixed stake in it. And so they will have an incentive to continue operating this network.
1: So my, my, my gut take on it so far is that you seem much more enthusiastic about Ethereum than you are about Bitcoin. Is that fair?
0: absolutely because i think bitcoin <laughs> has no functionality whereas ethereum or related networks have a lot of thing functionality they they actually have some really cool ideas so let you want to talk about those because i, I get i can get I very excited about that actually
1: <laughs> absolutely dude give me give me an example of an application that that makes you so excited about um you know ethereum versus bitcoin
0: so um i am a i'm i'm i come from the uh, from a trading background. That was my, what my research was on. And this is why I got interested in, uh, in cryptocurrencies. And I did not get excited about, uh, the, uh, the, the currencies as an, as a new trading tool or as a new asset to trade. What I thought is actually really cool is the way how you can trade them on this decentralized network. So let me give you just a a big roundup of how a trade works in a normal equity market. So if you and I want to trade, say, ABX, right? So our Barrick Gold, right? Uh, So let's say I want to sell it to you and you want to buy it. Uh, By law, we cannot actually agree mutually on exchanging the share, right? We have to actually go through the normal channels, which means I have to go to my broker. My broker sends an order to a stock exchange, right? And so you have to do the same thing. You have to go through a broker and to a stock exchange. And it's entirely possible that between you uh, within your broker and the stock exchange, there's actually other intermediaries, it could be tech intermediaries, uh, it could be also that, you know, your broker uses another broker to, you know, get the trade done. So then, if we happen to agree on a price, the stock exchange really just collects information, it doesn't really do anything other than, you know, matching us, then they send that information to the clearing and settlement agency, um, that then arranges for the clearing and settlement, which involves custodian banks that hold our stock certificates, and, uh, there has to be a change in the, uh, beneficiary ownership of who owns the stock. And, you know, critically, actually, nobody records actually you and I, uh, per se, but it's actually the owner is essentially technically the brokerage because they have, you know, hold your assets. And then we have to also do, and this is only for the stocks, for the stocks itself. We still have to change the money, which involves the entire payments network, uh, going via the Bank of Canada ledger. And so all of this takes three days or two, two days to, to, to come to an end. Right. Now this is,
1: this is why we get the settlement of, you know, time of trade plus, you know, two days, three days getting shorter, but still days,
0: days, exactly. Right. And you go, you know, it's 2021. Who, who, why? Right. I mean, you know, if computers can do this directly and this is precisely what a blockchain does in a blockchain, here's what you do is you create um, a contract think about this, it's almost like an escrow, right? So you basically, what you do is you create a contract and you send, so I want to sell it to you. So I take my shares, I put them to that contract. And it's a conditional contract, which says, if somebody else sends money to that contract, the amount that I want, then I give that person my share uh, in exchange for uh, the money. And so now all that you have to do is you have to, you see this contract, you send the money there, and the contract does what's referred to as an atomic swap. So it you know, it shifts, gives you the share and gives me the money all in one go. Right? And so, so is
1: this what is called a smart contract?
0: That is essentially what a smart contract is. It's just a piece of code, really, right? Right.
1: You know, if you were to create a diagram of all the participants required to facilitate the exchange of shares between one person and another, there are, you know, six Seven, maybe eight different intermediaries involved in that, just with the exchange, and then of course, then there's also the payment networks, as you said, and all of that could be replaced with this you know a uh, smart contract that could execute it in seconds
0: exactly uh, it's phenomenal and now in here's here so this is i mean this is just a single contract, and we still have the problem of having to find one another, right mm-hmm. so if you think of trading alone. Um, you don't solve, you solve the, you solve the tech problem, but you don't solve the liquidity problem, which is actually quite critical, right? Uh, because, you know, two people finding one another on a market is actually pretty hard. Um, and here's where, you know, the blockchain network has created an even better solution. Um, and what that is essentially is referred to as automated market makers. And so now here's how that works. Um, imagine you, um, have cryptocurrencies or, and some, other token that you you know both hold what you can do is you can deposit them into a smart contract which collects uh the same pairs of uh of cryptocurrencies or of, of digital items um you know you can imagine the same thing with stock certificates of course and you put this all into a smart contract and then individuals can trade against that smart contract at any given point in time and buy or sell any of these items that are in this smart contract um, at an automatedly created price, which reflects the liquidity of the entire contract. Um, so the system that I'm referring to here is is something called Uniswap. Um, this is like the you know automated market making 1.0. There's actually cleverer mechanisms already out there, but but the, the the genius of this is essentially what you create is the equivalent, if you want, of a bank. Right. Because what the bank really is, is a, is a, is a gigantic liquidity generator. It takes deposits from people and it takes, you know, and then gives out loans. Um, or it, you know, if, in some sense, it facilitates interactions, financial interactions. And that too is now being put into a smart contract, which is, you know, really a, a very, very cool idea and in, and, and uh, development. So yeah, it's,
1: it seems like the the applications of this technology uh, were just starting to scratch the surface. Um, but before we get to that point, I want to talk about regulation. And uh, again, I think there's a lot of people who look at the underlying technology and the impact that will have on society as being tremendous. And there are other people who look at, um, for example, Bitcoin and other coins as investment vehicles right this is a way to grow their money right now it's very speculative and there's a question as to how do you regulate who is in charge of regulating what is it a money services business is it you know just currency exchange is it something else and then you know we're going to talk about central bank digital loonies or digital currencies and, and what your proposal was for what things could look like and so my overarching question really about regulation, the existence and and proliferation of Bitcoin is this. If there are central banks around the world who are looking at creating their own digital currencies, because there are many who are exploring this right now, what does that mean for Bitcoin and the adoption and lifespan of Bitcoin going forward? Does Does that displace these unregulated uh, cryptocurrencies when you have central banks taking this technology and saying, no, we're going to take all the things that are great about this technology plus government oversight and regulation that we can see, and because that's what we're going to accept and transact on and and accept for paying taxes, that's all there's going to be. What do you see happening in the future when it comes to central bank digital currencies versus the current swath of cryptocurrencies that are out there?
0: So, what you're really asking is, do I have time to talk to you until 2022? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of questions, there's a lot of things yeah, to talk <laughs> about, and very interesting ones. Um, so let's so let's start. That was with... probably
1: the worst question I've ever asked in the history of this podcast. There was so many different
0: parts going on,
1: <laughs> but do your best. You're you're you know you're the smart one here.
0: Well, you know what? If you, if you had been a student of mine, I would just say, can you ask? So uh, I, I don't understand your question. Can you formulate it <laughs> again? <laughs> <laughs> just to, just to frustrate you. <laughs> Is that no, one of
1: your teaching pedagogies? I see. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's
0: it's a it's always a battle when pe- people challenge you with a question. You usually ask a question back, but in a very subtle way, <laughs> you know, to to flatter the other side. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, do the best
1: with what you can with that dog's breakfast of a question I asked you.
0: Well, let's start with a, a regulation as a first step, right? So, um, if you if you take a step back and just think about what the, what the founders of Ethereum wanted to do is that they had no intention of, you know, creating money and, and uh, you know, whatever a, a money laundering machine or anything, all that they wanted to do is create some technology. Right. And, um, and, you know, people do this all the time, right? People create any number of pieces of code. And there's actually some, you know, when you create a piece of code, there's actually a protection that you have uh, about it, right? So, you know, it's there's there's the, I think it's called, um, what is it? The, the GNU license or whatever it's called, right? So you basically say, if you want to use this code, use it, but I'm not responsible for anything that could go wrong, right? That's kind of the approach that people took, except that, It becomes a little iffy when you are both an operator and somebody who developed this code, right? And this is how they basically try to grab people in terms of, you know, whatever the activity is. Um, But here's where this gets difficult uh, in the following sense, because you touch about value transfers, and therefore you touch what is inherent to the financial system. Right. And, and that is a very, very heavily regulated market. But the regulations all have developed over time organically. Right. I would argue. So, in the sense of that, okay. So we had banks, banks, you know, got established. Um, banks used to, banks actually used to issue their own money. We, we realized that created all a number of problems. Then we have a new regulator, which regulates what money can be there. Then you regulate what kind of conditions you can put on loans and so on and so forth so this is like one piece built on the next piece built on the next piece built on the next piece and then you try to take this regulation which has essentially developed let's say since the late 1800s at least and you try to put that on top something which is conceptually very different right because the concept of a bank is you know it's an it's the, it is a entity of power between, that sits between borrowers and lenders, essentially, right? Because if, or depositors, if you want, right? As a depositor, I'm implicitly a lender. And as a, you know, and then you are the borrower, right? And so you kind of have to regulate how this is done. You have a fractional banking system, which, um, you know, which means that you need to make sure that if you, you always lend out more money than what you have in your coffers. So you want to make sure that at any given point in time, you have enough solvency. So that when, you know, when, when people want to have their money back that, you know, you're not going to falter because we know what, if that happens, we have riots on the street, all of those things, right? There's, there's a lot of concerns around this. This is why we have regulations. Now, the first question you have to ask is, should that really apply to, uh, you know, to, to this new world and, and why would it apply? It's not so just because there's items of value doesn't mean that the concerns that led to a particular type of regulation apply in the same sense. Right? So if you have a smart contract, for instance, which effectively is a loan contract, um, all the conditions are objectively visible. There is nothing hidden in it. right? Um, so you can see everything that you get into it, which is different from when you go and have a contract and you sign a contract with a knowing entity such, a ba- such as a bank. They may actually know something that you don't know. This is the real big problem. And this is where you get regulation to solve The imbalance of power. That is not the case when you interact with a, with a piece of code, I would argue, right? So should we apply the same rules for that? I'm not sure. Um, I think we should really reconsider some, many of the rules that we have in place. Now, at the same time. You can also say what, uh, so somebody from the OSCE said to me is just because you sit, you know, in your pajamas in your basement and say, Oh, I'm so innovative doesn't mean that the rules don't apply to you. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, so you got to be really cautious about, but I think you, and I think the right way to think about this is to be a little hands off and just see how it pans out and, and, and not to slap people right away with regulation. But I can tell you, um, you know, um, So just imagine, for instance, this Uniswap contract that I talked to you about this, uh, this this trading contract, effectively, what this contract does, it takes custody of assets, right, and then it has a particular rule that is assigned to the running of these uh, of these interactions. And when you take the custody of the assets, the question is, are you already a bank? Does the bank regulation apply to you? Do you have what regulatory compliance do you have to follow? This is a really tricky question that people who want to just create a, a particular tool cannot answer, cannot possibly answer. And to get a legal opinion, they probably have to save, uh, spend several million dollars and they may still not get an answer from, from anybody, right? <laughs> so in that sense, um, I am I am what I th- is what I think and what I really worry about is that people use regulation not in the sense of oh we have to protect people which is really what regulation is there for it's used as a way oh we have to re- we have to protect the incumbents because god forbid they may lose some income by you know people <laughs> trying to build technology which could replace them right so right. because so last thing i'm going to say so this is the, the there's a very famous um economist uh, Stigler who said this? He, he was, you know, he was basically the the godfather of of um, economic analysis of regulations, if you want. And he said, regulation is made uh, for industry by industry. And so all regulation that you see that is in place has been created by industry players. Right, it's not like there is a bunch of lawyers that sit together from a regulatory office and say, "Here is what we come up with." There is always a consultation process, and the consultation process is always by interested parties, usually um, made by um, you know the incumbents. So I could go on on a rant forever, for instance, about open banking regulation in Canada, but let's just let's just say this, right? So what incumbents would like to do is unless they see an upside for them a definite guaranteed upside a guaranteed one right not a possible one they they will try whatever they can to kill new you know rules which would which would impede on their on their playground so
1: yeah of course of course Okay, the last thing that I want to leave off with, although it sounds like you wanted to say something else, so I will not. Well, stop you wanted you.
0: to. Now you wanted to talk about the CBDCs, right? So you kind yeah. of did uh, from went from regulation to CBDCs. Yes. Yes. So let's talk about that a little bit. right? we, we still have some time. I mean, you Absolutely. can cut me. Out. You can always cut me out, right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I uh, look forward to hearing your thoughts on this because, again, that's that that was the impetus for for bringing you on because I wanted to learn more about where central banks stand on their thoughts on on central bank issued digital currencies and uh, what your contributions were to those proposals to the bank of canada
0: so so there again this this is a broad area with many different components that one should think about and um i think i would i think it's fair to say that um the central banks were actually not getting into cbdcs thinking so much because of bitcoin or the like but it's more uh, you know, general developments that happen in other parts of the, of the financial world. So I think seeing what, for instance, payments app have done in India and in, uh, in China is much more interesting for a CBDC on developments of CBDCs than thinking about Bitcoin and Ethereum, even though there's a certain common threat. And so let me just say the first thing, and that's important. I think it is what's not going to happen, what, I've, what was very unlikely to happen is that a uh, CBDC as such, as as the alternative, not alternative, as a substitute to cash is issued on uh, something like uh, Ethereum. or this, this is not going to happen, right? And the reason is, is it's going to be a, a systemically important uh, technology, right, or infrastructure, which has to be under the control of a government. And uh, a cryptocurrency and a, and a decentralized network simply is not. Mm-hmm. Now, I think there is there is merit to central banks issuing uh, digital cash on Ethereum, but not as their CBDC, their single thing that they, they want to have. They could do it in order to enable uh, commerce, but it doesn't even have to be a central bank doing it. You could actually have... You know, a province could issue, you know, minor loan, uh, what, what's called like a T-bill, right? So they could do $1 denominated T-bills and issue those on a blockchain, and then they would be essentially the same as money, right? Mm-hmm. They could do that if they wanted to. Um, So, but what I'm saying with that is CBDCs will always run on a network, which is controlled by, um, you know, at least in, in large part, or at least supersede or was overseen by a central bank, where they have the ability to know exactly who is what actor. That's, that's the bottom line of that, right? So, but that does not mean that this new system cannot interact, for instance, with the likes of an Ethereum blockchain. Very much to the contrary. I think actually, if we had a CBDC, this would actually make uh, the use of something like Ethereum or, or, or these decentralized blockchains, generally speaking, even more powerful and even mm-hmm. more interesting.
1: Let me let me give you a very hypothetical scenario. Let me know how far off the mark this is. <laughs> let's take a look at uh, taxpayers in Canada, and uh, let's say government wanted to enact a program similar to CERB where they wanted to give cash directly to certain people who qualified for it. Is there a possibility with technology like this that you would be able to say things like, "Listen, um, we know that there are." government benefits for people who have kids who don't contribute to an RESP, but their income is below a certain level, and so they have access to what's called the Canada Learning Bond. You don't need to make a contribution to get the benefit. It's designed for lower-income households, but so many people don't get it because they don't know to apply for it, but the government could if they had you know, this super blockchain that takes into account everything they know about taxpayers, they could file tax returns for them. They could say, this person has a child, there's a SIN number been registered, they would get this Canada Learning Bond payment. If we want to give people CERB because they've lost their income, we can see when their income stops and we could give them money. Is that something that could be done with technology like this? And how many centuries would that take?
0: Well, of course, you can do that. There's no question about it. You, you, I mean, you want to be slightly cautious in separating knowledge, right? So, um, because I think you need to maintain, have the ability to maintain people's privacy, but that even without, even with what you said, it could be done, right? So you can, you know, keep people's uh, financial activities with CBDCs entirely private. And at the same time, you can still give them the benefit of everything that you described. Now, what you described sound very uh, to you may sound like an utopia, um, or utopia, right? It's the word. Mm-hmm. Um, but um so parts of this is already a reality in say Scandinavia, right? So when you are <laughs> so a fun fact, I, I spend a year in Denmark. Um you don't really file your tax return as such, like as you have to do here, where you have to enter all the information. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the other way around. Basically they tell you, look, this is what we have for you. Do you have anything to add? Right. Right so um so because they know every all the piece of information they're already collected simply because effectively they have a digital system with digital identifiers so they actually know an awful lot about what you do Then, yeah, so if you go to a bank you have a bank account you have a you know you have a savings account or whatever uh, you have a your brokerage account and you do your stock trades they would know what you've done i mean not not in all details but the Basically, the bank would make a report and say, here's how much interest this person earned, and so on and so forth. Now, we have this technically, too. It's just that the pieces are not put together, um, you know, uh, which which could be, right? Um, and, and, of so,
1: course, if you did sort of enact the technology and the linking of these databases to do this... You would then cost industry a lot of money who get paid, you know, fees to prepare these things and whatnot, which is a huge impediment, <laughs> as we've talked about.
0: Yes, it is, actually. So I think this is a, I think there's almost, I, I, I heard, I may be wrong on this, that there's almost a deal that the CRA made with, uh, you know, tax accountants, H, HR block and, and, uh, service, pro- whatever the, the software service providers of not actually to do, do, you know, provide their own mask for enter all in, entering all the tax information. Which is ridiculous, right? If you ask me, (laughs) right? Um, yeah. But, well, you know, why do I have to to pay an external service provider to do my taxes? This is just ridiculous, right? Mm -hmm. This is, this is between me and my government. There should be no intermediate, no interested third party in between.
1: And and I think there are um, other – my partner lives in the UK, and she says it's basically your taxes are done for you, and you only file if you disagree or you want to disagree and say, hey, no, I've got extra credits to apply. But for the most part, it's just sort of
0: done. But that is correct. Actually, the UK, I was there too, obviously, as a student. I thought that was the best experience ever. Oh, really? My- right. Yeah, yeah because it was just like it was a one piece one like like three numbers entered to me obviously because I was you know low-income student and all right but I was just like wow this is how this could work this is amazing <laughs> now having said that I think one has to I think we want to be slightly cautious though right because um, there's this huge uh, temptation especially for governments to collect all kinds of data and to know a lot about you I feel very mm-hmm. uncomfortable with that and I think what everybody should feel uncomfortable with that um, you know uh, not to put too fine a point to it, but when I get my census form and they ask me about my religion, I actually, you know, it just makes my my head stand up, right? Because it's what mm-hmm. what what business do they have to know my religion? And, you right. know, is there a possibility that at some point we get a government which, you know, mis abuses the data and then, you know, rounds me up because I I say um I believe in in the force and I'm am a Jedi Master or something, right? <laughs>
1: You know, if that's an option, I'm going to put that on there for sure. And I don't know. Can you hear all these horns in the background? Like, I think it's it's trucks and no, cars. This is,
0: no, this is the suburban life to you. This is a lawnmower. <laughs>
1: <laughs> there it is. I don't know what's going on outside, but it.
0: Oh, you have the horns. Oh, yeah. so okay. So I have a, I have a lawnmower, which is very loud. <laughs> oh, I don't
1: I don't hear that at all. So, and in any case, um, I I. Th- think i'll start wrapping up only because i've had you here for an hour and i think no no i, I want so, to say i
0: want to say something more now so let's, oh, absolutely <laughs> because, yeah because that's actually also critical so mm-hmm. let me just say a few things um because we wanted to talk about cbdc's and um, there's things to say about that i think that um that are relevant also where this is coming from and so first i want to say a few things let's talk about china for a moment and, and mm-hmm. we chat right um so i'm not sure if you've been to china recently um there if you go there you, you usually have to use either alipay or wechat pay to make any payments most stores don't accept credit cards or actually not even cash right so you go into a restaurant you sit down at the table uh you you take out your app you you order on your app right uh the the food arrives at some point and then you just leave right okay? because they have basically solved so many they, they have been able to integrate payments with a lot of services um and essentially WeChat is a, is, a, is a chat software and they have, they, they created the ability to use that sof- chat software to, do make, to make payments. And what that allowed China as a whole was to basically leapfrog over several development cycles that we have in the Western world. So they don't need credit cards. They don't need debit cards. They don't need this whole separate system of a, you know, of a network where you have lots of different parties that benefit of you tapping your cards and so on and so forth of a visa system. None of that. Everything goes with this one app. And what this app is effectively, it creates a common resource which can be used by multiple service providers. And many of the services that are provided on WeChat Pay actually are provided by WeChat Pay, but by external service providers. So that as a, as a vision of thinking of a financial infrastructure as a common resource is the same as what a blockchain really tries to do, except... You know, it's, it's open to anybody and, you know, it's, it's much more decentralized, right? And then now, and now let's talk about a different development, which is also coming out where, which is the so-called DM network or uh, infrastructure or whatever it is, uh, association. Um, it's something which was founded by Facebook, um, or initiated by Facebook. It was earlier called Libra. It changed its name to DM.
1: Oh, as in like Carpe DM, DM. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, <laughs> i think no, maybe, so maybe yeah maybe like seize a day, the data yeah. Sees the data sees the day what's the difference <laughs> yeah exactly
0: <laughs> well but so so f- to be fair by the way facebook actually um disassociated itself with it so it's basically runs by itself um oh, okay but um i mean they're still supporting it i think financially but um the important part is um they try to stay away from it because i think they themselves realize that Their presence harmed, actually, this network. (laughs) 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 Great. But, you know, that, again, is the same idea. So what they're trying to build is a blockchain, but it would be a permission blockchain where uh, service providers and so on and so forth create an entire network of a new financial infrastructure. So, for instance, Shopify is part of this. Uber is part of this. Coinbase, the crypto exchange, is part of this. Um, Our creative destruction lab at uh, U of T is part of it. And so the idea is also that you create this financial infrastructure as a common resource that people can use in order to shift money around and to access particular services—not just financial services, but basically use this network for a payments um, as a payment system and as a digital payment system. Again, you know, one which is not siloed or uh, siloed with you know a central entity for clearing, as as what um, currently our central banks have as a role. But it is something which is run, you know, by many different entities um, collectively. And I think that in particular, that latter development is what really supercharged the development and the thinking of CBDCs. Why people say, okay, maybe there's actually, maybe these guys are onto something. Maybe this is something that we should actually enable to do. And maybe our financial sector, such as it is, uh, you know, wouldn't do it by itself either because nobody has an incentive to do it by themselves and can do it by themselves, or because they're just making so much money, they just don't want to do it, right? But if you are a government and you say, so in particular, Canada, right? So DM has its own money. Uh, It's denominated in US dollar, there's also probably a coin, which would be the RMB, the sterling and the euro, maybe the yen, right? Not a Canadian dollar. So But what you will see is that people use this network and say, Hey, this is really, this works for me. This is really useful, right? I can now shift my money around faster. I can make faster payments. I get my refunds right away, whatever it is, right? So there's extra functionality is going to come your way. And at some point, uh, the, the, the usage and the, you know, the helpfulness becomes a necessity. So if you want to access certain services, you need to be part of it. At that point, the Canadian dollar becomes irrelevant. Right? Oh, interesting. Um, so,
1: so uh, a number of questions here, and now I'm going to take you for like an extra half hour. Um, <laughs> uh, first question: uh, A Bank of Canada central bank digital currency. Five years, ten years. Do you think that it will happen? Yes.
0: What is the uh, time
1: frame? Do you think?
0: So I have no inside information. I want to be very clear sure. about this, yeah, of right? Course, so of course. They, whatever they say publicly is also what they say privately. <laughs> <So>.
1: <laughs> okay. They're very clear about this right, so they yeah. say we have
0: no plans on it, um you know, but we're just exploring and we're trying to prepare ourselves for it that's what everybody says um now um Brazil uh put up a it's not entirely a Cbdc system, but uh, the bank of brazil the the central bank, put out a uh a real-time payment system which is akin to you know at least the first stage of a, of a cbdc, and they created that within nine months okay so it's not a technologically hard problem right and yeah. Brazil is uh, um, I would, is a much bigger country than Canada right I mean you know landmass wise obviously Canada is bigger but Brazil is uh, is much more dispersed in terms of where people live and, uh, and it's probably much more complicated because most likely I, we could argue it's not as technologically advanced as us I hope at least we can say that right <laughs> right yeah so if they can pull it off clearly Canada can pull it off clearly
1: right Right. and 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 when it comes to let's say different central banks launch their own digital currencies certainly some of the smaller countries maybe less developed countries would say well we're not going to do it but we could use your infrastructure is that correct
0: well i I would argue so if you are a small country um forgetting about the technologically advanced or not um, because that's actually that's not so clear what that means these days anymore right um but um as a small country, and you want if you want to maintain power over your monetary system or monetary oh, you'd policy, want to avoid that. yeah. you definitely need a CBDC. You need it more than the US. Right? The US is probably good f- for now, right? But um if the US comes out with a CBDC before you're a small country, it's entirely possible that people go, "Well, we're just going to use the US CBDC." At the end. Right? In particular, if you have any trade with the US as a small country. Money will come into your country because Americans buy your product, right? And then, so then you have US dollars in the country and then all of a sudden you can already have that money in circulation. This is actually different from even the current monetary flows, right? Because currently if you have a trade with an, with a foreign country, uh, yes, there's money, US dollars essentially coming into the country, but it stays with the banks. When you have a CBDC payment actually going on a, on a digital ledger, it's entirely possible that you have the real dollars available in that small country. For the general consumption of the population, that's very different, right? Mm-hmm. It's a little bit like if you, if you make a, a cash payment for a trade, which not, not doesn't happen much anymore, right? So this would be a game changer for small countries, but not necessarily. I mean, sometimes I would say in a good way for the people of the country, but for governments that want to maintain monetary policy power, not a good thing.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask, you know, um, and this is tying in a bunch of different areas all into one, but if you take a look at, let's say, the introduction of the euro and all these different countries and their currencies, they used a a common currency. Wasn't one of the criticisms that, you know, if your economy as itself is doing poorly, then if your currency goes down in value, it makes it more attractive to buy your stuff? And it's sort of a. Sort of a self-leveling mechanism to a certain extent. Would you lose that if you know other countries adopted a single central bank digital currency?
0: Yeah, that's exactly the problem that would arise, right? So, um, so in the European Union, uh, they, they, they obviously the getting the euro has many dimensions, including a political yeah. one. So you kind of create a little bit. The, the, the thinking was you create more unity, um, but you're absolutely right. If you have no Free movement of people and of resources um, available, and which is the case, right? You even in Europe, you can you can move, but you actually can't easily, right? Because of language, because of pension systems and healthcare and all of that. Um, then you know you by losing monetary uh, pop, uh, power over your monetary policy, you potentially um when 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 say Germany is doing well and you're not doing well, there's no way how you can use. Uh, you know the value of your currency to continue to compete with them Mm -hmm. and so you're absolutely right so that is a problem can i just say one say one more thing about the digital advancements of uh, countries absolutely so if you look at africa um not in terms of cbdc but in terms of uh you know the development of um of money, um, so in, you may have heard about M-Pesa, which is mm-hmm. um, uh, which is not digital money, which is mobile money. So it's money that you can transmit with even the most basic cell phones. That has been a game changer for the development in countries like like uh, like uh, Kenya. So it increased uh, financial inclusion and so on and so forth. Even though really all that this country had, I mean, they have a cell network, of course, right? And so that alone, if you think of technological advances, is enough. To create a great deal of financial inclusion. And the DM network actually tries to go into exactly the same direction. I say, look, all that you need is a, is a, is a cell phone these days or a a smartphone these days. And all, and you know, with DM, now you actually have access to an entire financial infrastructure that otherwise you do not have. So for development of uh, weaker countries in that sense, this could be a huge game changer. So. I'm extremely, I find this extremely exciting from that perspective. If it, if it turns out to be actually used for the common good.
1: Okay, uh, we'll leave it there, Andreas. Thank you so much. I'm going to compile a list of links to some of the things that we've talked about for people who want to learn a little bit more, including links to your website if you want to follow more of Andreas's work. His YouTube channel has some great videos explaining blockchain, cryptocurrency, a lot of things that will help bring you up to speed, and he doesn't have i would say a vested interest he's not a a promoter he is just trying to get towards truth which i think is so hard to find these days because there are so many commercial interests in all these technologies and sometimes they embellish the good things and they don't tell you about the downsides and i feel like andreas is a real straight shooting resource on this so andreas thank you so much for coming on the show
0: oh thanks for having me it's great fun
1: If you want more personal finance content, or you have questions for me or topic suggestions for the podcast, you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram and ask away. It's the same handle in both cases at Preet Banerjee, spelled just like it sounds. Good luck with that. I also have two YouTube channels. You can subscribe to my main channel, which covers personal finance and investing topics that are global in scope and a Canadian specific channel as well. That is it for this episode. Thank you for listening.